following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Is it just me, or does it feel like it's been forever since we've been in Mark? Not just me then? Okay. Or it is just me. I don't know which uh, to interpret that with, but it has been a while, though, because last week we took a uh, Sunday just to kind of look at some of the things for the future, just to remind ourselves some of the, the stuff we looked at a few months pack. Uh, week prior, I think, was Mother's Day, correct? Yeah, it's all blending together, and the week before that was the picnic. So it has been a busy, busy month, and school's not even done yet. Summer's not even here. When summer gets here, it's all crazy anyway. So we're going to keep working through Mark chapter 3. We're going to actually reading some new verses today. We're going to be reading verses 20 to 35. So if you're there in Mark 3, please look at verse 20. And you'll see the Mark writes this. Then he went home, and the crowd had gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Jesus, come today with a busy week behind us, a busy month behind us, a busy weekend here with Memorial Day and all the things that we do to celebrate and remember those who have served. And so it's very easy for us this morning to walk in with all these events and things in our minds and to be distracted right from the beginning. I pray, Lord, that today you will clear all of our hearts and minds, mine particularly, and help us to focus this morning on your word, to understand it, to to see it for what it is, to, to see you, Jesus, for who you are, and that you would then speak to us and through your spirit, through your through your word, as the spirit takes it and applies it to our hearts, that you will encourage us in the truth of who you are and why you have come, that the forgiveness that you have come to bring here in Mark is the very forgiveness that we place our hope and trust in today, that apart from you, we have absolutely nothing. And so, Jesus, make that clear to us this morning as we work through your word. Help us to see it. Help me to be clear as I speak and teach. I pray, Lord, that anything I say that would be incorrect or that may cloud a right understanding of your word will just be stricken from everyone's memory and that, Lord, only those things that aid in the proper understanding of the scriptures will come out. 
of this room this morning. And so we give this time to you. We ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, it was my birthday recently. Just turned the big 36 a couple of uh, Fridays ago. It's starting to hit me that I'm, I'm really getting close to 40 now, uh, only four years out. In fact, it was my birthday evening that I was sitting there, and I was like, I'm only 14 years away from being 50. See, now some of you in this room are like, so? And the rest of you are like, oh, no. And everyone who's 50 just got offended by that. But it was, it was probably, you know, if I have to remember, if I try to remember, which I can't remember all of them anymore, but if I try to remember, it was probably one of my favorite birthday days I have ever had. When I woke up that morning, the kids had been really sweet, and they had gone and bought some uh, breakfast stuff for me, like some of my favorite things. So they had uh, country ham cooking, biscuits in the oven, scrambled eggs. So I had country ham biscuits and eggs for breakfast. Mm. If you like country ham, I do. Uh, that uh, at morning after we ate breakfast, we went over to the rec center, played some racquetball, and Nathaniel and I, we had a lot of fun doing that. Came home, Jamie made one of my favorite lunches, which is going to sound weird to some of you, but it's, I like it. It's hot Italian sausage with macaroni and cheese and plain potato chips. What do you mean, ooh? Those, those three things, those three plants, the hot Italian sausage plant and the macaroni and cheese plant and the chip plant grew next to each other in the Garden of Eden because God intended them to be together. Don't knock it till you tried it. It's really, really good together. So we, we had that for lunch. And then after that, we went to go see Godzilla because we had some free tickets. And so went, and that wasn't all that great, but whatever. It was fine. That was fun. Came home that night. My mom treated us to my favorite Mexican place, El Tapatio. All in all, it was an absolutely great birthday. Now, a few weeks prior to this, Jamie and the kids and I went down to Cumberland, Virginia with Debbie and uh, Nick and Grace, and we hung out there for a few days with them, and we had a lot of fun there. I think I told you about That's where the drive-by viewing was, for those of you who were here for that. So we're, we were there hanging out one night, and we're sitting around the table, Debbie and Jamie and I, and Debbie, sorry, I'm about to do this to you. Debbie brings up a topic of conversation for us to discuss there around the table. And the topic was this. Who is the best-looking male superhero in the movies today? Right in front of me, mind you. Okay, I'm sitting at the table. Here's my wife, and here's Debbie. And she's like, so who do you think is the best-looking male superhero? So we begin, we, I'm not really involved, but I'm listening. We, we begin this debate, and so they're debating the, the merits of, you know, Hugh Jackman versus Thor, right, versus Chris Hemsworth. Here, you know what? I don't need the votes right now. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to say that up front. They're, they're debating which one's better. Then, then they move on to Henry Cavill, Cavill, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, or Chris Evans, right, Captain America. So they're having this debate, and it goes on for a few minutes, and eventually the two of them have to agree to disagree. Debbie eventually decides that, in her opinion, Chris Hemsworth is the best-looking male superhero today. She's a Thor fan. Jamie, on the other hand, my wife, who's sitting there engaging in this conversation in front of me, uh, decides, I'm keeping emphasizing this, decides that, no, it's really Chris Evans. He's the best-looking male superhero today. And as they're having this, I'm going to leave this picture up for a minute. As we're having this conversation, three things are going through my mind. One. If the roles were reversed, and it was me and Jamie and some other guy sitting around a table, and that guy were to say to me, Stacy, who do you think is the hottest actress in a superhero movie today? I would receive a look from my wife that would say to me, you have no opinion on this subject. <laughs> to which I would then say, I have no opinion on this subject, okay? 
I was just struck by the double standard of this conversation. And husbands, you know what I'm talking about, right? right? This is, that would never fly the opposite direction, but this way apparently was fine. Second, I was actually uh, not really bothered by it because I was kind of encouraged because I realized that if you take away his muscles and his dashing good looks and his full head of hair and his fame and his money and his talent, we're almost the same guy anyway, <laughs> right? Third, I finally realized why she wanted me to keep the beard. <laughs> Who knew, right? <laughs> there it was right in front of us. So, so ever since that little debate a few weeks ago, I've been giving her a hard time about this, right? Making fun of her, making little comments here and there. Well, I'm no Chris Evans. I get that, but, you know, that kind of stuff. So on my birthday, she decides that she wants to be funny back. So that morning after I eat my breakfast, she gives me a present, and I open it up, and it's a shirt. Oh, no, it went way too quick. There it is. Took a little selfie for you, a Captain America shirt, so now finally I'm getting closer, closer. I just got to fill it out now, right? That's... That shouldn't take too long. Now, what, what does that story have to do with Mark chapter 3? Absolutely nothing. However, there's something about the way that I told that story that actually sheds a great deal of light on this passage that we're looking at here in Mark chapter 3. You see, in telling my story, I used a literary or rhetorical device that known, is known as intercalation. Okay, that's a fancy word, but this is what it's known as, intercalation. And intercalation is when you take a story, one story, and you break it up and you insert another story in the middle. So as I began that little tale there, I began by talking about my birthday, correct? That was story A here for my illustration. But I didn't tell the whole story. At some point, I stopped, and in the middle of that, I inserted the story of this debate from a few weeks ago, story B. And when I told that part of the story, that I told that story in its entirety, and then I came back at the end of that and finished my birthday story, story A. This is a literary or rhetorical device, again, known as intercalation. It's also known as as sandwiching or bracketing. You can kind of see why. And I want you to think about what that particular technique can do for a writer, for an author, or a storyteller. First, it connects ideas that may otherwise not really be obviously connected. So by telling those two stories together, you got to see that there was something about one that influenced the other in a particular way. I mean, imagine for a moment if I had just got up here and told you the story of my birthday, and I said at the end of that story, I was like, yeah, we had a great day, we did this stuff, I had this food, because my birthday is always built around food, by the way. Uh, We had all this great food, and at the end I got a Captain America shirt. You'd all be sitting there going, okay, thank you. Must like him a lot or something, I don't know. It wouldn't have any significance. But by inserting that other story in the middle, the ending made sense. You finally got why that was an important detail as part of the story. Second, it shows you the the true significance of both stories, particularly the one that's kind of acting as the bread and the sandwich, right? The one at the beginning and end. By using that middle story the way I did, I showed you what I was really trying to get at there in the the overall story. So, So on their own, neither of them are all that particularly funny. The debate one's kind of funny. But together, 
together, they make a lot more sense. And I was able to get across the point that I wanted to make. Does, does that make sense what I'm doing there with that device called intercalation? Do you understand the concept? I hope so, because that's what we're about to run into here in Mark chapter 3. As you may recall, we've been working through a section that started back in Mark chapter 3, thir- uh, verse 13, and goes all the way through verse 35, that is focused on how these different groups that we see here in chapter 3 respond to Jesus. We, we saw him in those five scenes of controversy from chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 6. And when, when those five scenes were done and Jesus has done all this stuff and he said all this stuff, it's time for a response. And there's some different responses that, that might come out of all of that controversy and all that teaching. And we see them on display here in Mark 3, verses 13 to 35. And we spent the last few weeks in Mark 3, 13 to 19, looking at a group of 12 men who responded to Jesus and his claims in faith, right? Believing that he is who and what he says he is, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. And we know these 12 men more commonly as the apostles or as the 12 disciples. And while we may know them as a group to some extent, just because we're familiar with the gospel accounts, familiar with what they do in various situations, we really don't know them very well personally. And so I took those last few Sundays to try to just give you a little more information about each individual guy, right? Just what do we know about them in the scriptures? What what do the scriptures tell us from from the time we meet them first in Matthew through Revelation? What What can we learn about them? We looked at that as well as some things we see in church history as well. And I hope that was helpful to you. I hope you have a just a little better understanding of who these guys were than you did before we did that, because as we continue to work through Mark, we're going to interact with these guys time and time and time again, and so we want to make sure that we're remembering who they are and, and, and why they're important in the story. But, but today we're going to turn our attention now to this next section here, verses 20 to 35, to two more groups of people who do not respond to Jesus in faith. Two groups who do not believe that he is who and what he says he is. And these two groups are, strangely enough, his family and the religious leaders that are surrounding him. And and I just draw your attention to that for a moment. I mean, if anyone should believe him, wouldn't you think his biological family would be on his side? I mean, family sticks together. And yet, you see it right here in verses 20 and 21, they, they think he's crazy. Or the religious leaders who have spent their life praying that the Messiah would come, that God's deliverer would come. You would think that when he finally came, they'd be really excited to meet him. Yet they're rejecting him as being possessed by Satan. So it's odd that the two groups you would think would be most excited about his message are the two groups who reject him, and it's the strangers that are around him, the common people around him who embrace his message and believe. And so in drawing our attention to this rejection of Jesus, Mark has used that same literary device that I used a moment ago, this intercalation, to help us understand his larger point. Just, just notice the, the device first, and we'll come back and start talking about it in a moment, but, but notice he begins verses 20 to 21 by talking about Jesus' family, right? That's the beginning. When he goes back home, he's in the house, they're trying to eat, it's too crowded. The family says, we got to go get this guy, we got to seize him, we got to take him, because he's out of his mind. Pause. Verse 22, he begins talking about the response of the religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees, and he tells us an entire story, an entire story about their response that doesn't end until verse 30. And then notice in verse 31, who does he come back to? It's family again. They're outside the door now. It's like, it's like in verse 21, they're like, we got to go get him. He's out of his mind. 
while they're walking, this happens. Now they're outside the door. Hey, we're here. We want to talk to you. Who are my mother and brothers? People who do the will of God. That's my mother and my sister and my brother. This, this is how Mark has, has formed this. That's intercalation. And so, so what we're going to do this morning, because I had to decide, do I want to deal with story A first or story B first? Okay, Because I had to got to pick one to explain the other. They, they go together, we'll tie them together in the end. But, but in thinking about it and, and looking at it, I really think that in order to understand his larger point, I need to start with B first. I need to deal with this section here in the middle first. And next week we'll come back after we understand B and we'll look at A and then we'll tie the whole thing together in a way that hopefully gets to Mark's larger point here in the text. So let's begin by looking at the setting of story be here. And Mark introduces this story to us very simply by noting that the scribes who came down from Jerusalem are saying two things. One, that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, which is just another name for Satan, okay? He's possessed by Satan. That's message number one they're saying. Number two, that he is casting out demons by the prince of demons, again, by Satan. So he's possessed by Satan. That's message one. Message two is he is casting out demons by the power of Satan. Now, I want you to, I want you to think about those accusations for a moment. And I want you to remember back to those five scenes of controversy that we looked at starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. In fact, if it helps you to turn there, please do so, because I want you to, to remember some things about people involved in these scenes. But In Mark chapter 2, verse 1, that was the first scene, and that was of him teaching in a house that was so full that these four guys who are bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus to have him healed, they they can't get in. So what do they do? They go up on the roof, they remove the roof, lower him down in there. And I want you to to just simply notice verse, uh, I think it's verse 6 here. Yeah, verse 6. Notice who's sitting there listening and watching. Who is it? It's the scribes. They're present in the scene. And so when Jesus sees the guy being, being dropped down, he doesn't say to him, son, get up and walk. His first statement to him is, son, your sins are forgiven. And, and Mark tells us in verse 6 that the scribes who are sitting there think to themselves, this is blasphemy. Because who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus, showing that he is God, right, says or knows what they're thinking. He says, well, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. But, but, so that you can know I have the power to forgive sins, hey, buddy, get up. And the guy gets up in front of the scribes who are sitting there. They see this demonstration of his power and this confirmation that he has the ability to forgive sins. The guy walks out the door. The people are amazed. Amazed. The scribes are witnesses to this. And scene two, notice he calls Levi a tax collector to be one of his followers. And Levi throws a dinner party afterwards, remember, and he invites all his tax collector friends and sinner friends, and they're all together, and Jesus is there. And verse 16 tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees see this, and they're offended by it. Why does your master eat with these people? And what was Jesus' response there? You remember that? His response was, hey, look, I, I didn't call, come to, to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. He's being sarcastic to them. Because they think they're righteous and all these other people are sinners. He's like, look, sick people don't need a physician, or well people don't need a physician. Clearly you're fine. Clearly you're well. I'm here for the sick and I'm eating dinner with them right now. They don't like how he treats these lesser people in society. In scene three, you have this discussion of why the Pharisees fast, but Jesus and his disciples don't fast. And Jesus basically tells them, look, I'll tell you why we're, <laughs> we're not fasting and you are. 
because what I'm bringing is going to replace your system. The, the new that I'm bringing is going to replace the old, and of course they're a part of that old system, and that doesn't really sit too well with them. They don't, they don't care for that message. Scene four, the disciples are walking through a field of grain on the Sabbath. They're hungry, so they begin to pluck heads of grain. Remember that? Rub them together, eat the, eat the kernels. The Pharisees see that, and they begin to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. How dare your disciples break the Sabbath laws? And Jesus says, wait a minute. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And even if it was a problem, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Remember that line? Finally, in scene 5, chapter 3, verse 1, again, he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there's a man with a withered hand there. And Mark tells us there in chapter 3 that the Pharisees are watching to see what he'll do. Remember that? And so Jesus, knowing this, asks the question, is it okay to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? What's, what's okay? They won't answer. So he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Man does, hand is restored instantly. And I want to draw your attention then back to the end of that section and notice chapter 3, verse 6. It says, the Pharisees then went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him regarding how to destroy him. Here we've seen them in these five scenes. They're there every time. And they're seeing what's going on. They're unhappy with what's going on. They've seen Jesus' miracles. They've heard his teaching. They've watched all this. And now by the end of chapter 3, verse 6, they are fed up. Let's go get together with a group we normally wouldn't have a whole lot to do with, the Herodians. And let's figure out what we can do to destroy this guy because he's a problem for us all. And we haven't really seen anything since then, right? We haven't seen the religious leaders back in, in the story since verse 6. Verse 22 is the first time that we have seen them interacting with Jesus since they began their organized plot to destroy him. And what I think we're seeing here is their first attempt at the destruction of Jesus here in verse 22. First attempt at the destruction of Jesus. They're starting with a spiritual or religious assassination attempt if you want to think of it that way, to, to assassinate his spiritual character, his spiritual uh, um, reputation, his religious reputation. And the way Mark has worded it here in the beginning of verse 22 sounds an awful lot like an advertising campaign. He says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, saying, this is what they're doing. They're, they've got a message that they're putting forward. And you remember that the scribes are the religious scholars of their day. And this is their ongoing message being said, note, not necessarily to Jesus, but to anyone who will listen. Anyone who's around them. This guy is possessed by, by Satan and he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. These professionals from the religious center of the nation, not just the local scribes, the, the big boys from Jerusalem have come to town, this backwater province of Galilee, to discredit Jesus with these specific talking points. It's as if they're trying to put a spin on the events that are going on all around Jesus and that they themselves have witnessed numerous times. And I want you to just recognize that their message here is that Jesus is not an emissary from God. He might look like that. He might claim to be that. But please note, folks, he's not really that. No, what he really is, is a man possessed by Satan, Satan himself. They're, they're going right to the top. And it's only by that power then that he's able to do 
these things and have this power over demons. This is their campaign. And, and just notice, because this struck, struck me so strongly, notice that they don't make any attempt to deny Jesus' miracle working power here. It's not that they come out and say, you know what, guys, I, he, he's a charlatan. He planted that paralyzed guy that day. He asked four guys to pick up another guy who could already walk, and they put him on a bed. He found a man and somehow with smoke and mirrors made his hand look withered. This is not their message, that he's a charlatan who somehow figured out a way to, to trick people and make them think that he's doing things. In fact, they actually affirm his miracle-working power in their message. They are affirming that he is able to cast out demons. You see that? They're just simply uh, denying that that power comes from God. And in place of that, they're attributing this power to Satan himself. That's what I mean by spiritual assassination. They're, they're trying to make him out to be something else. They can't deny his power, so they're attempting to destroy him by associating that power with Satan himself. That's the campaign, not just a one-time statement. They've come saying, this is what they're saying, and they're going to keep saying it. This is their message. Does that make sense? What's going on here? Okay. Notice Jesus' response then to this campaign. It's actually three responses here in these verses. Number one, he gives what I'm calling a common sense response in verses 23 to 26. He called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? I mean, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is but is coming to an end. I mean, just consider that for a moment. Can, can Satan cast out Satan? Is that, is that even, does that even make sense? Of course not. I mean, why would the enemy of God try to hurt his own cause by casting demons out of people made in God's image? I, this doesn't even make sense at, at its most basic level. And Jesus gives two illustrations to prove his point. Number one, he says, if a kingdom is divided it's against itself, it can't stand. That's like the, the message of the Civil War, right? We can't be a nation divided. We have to be one because a nation divided against itself can't stand. If, if all of a sudden today the military rises up against the, the president, we're going we're gonna to be in a mess. A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Number two, second illustration, if a house is divided against itself, it's not going to make it. If Jamie and I all of a sudden turn on each other, we're going to end up divorced. Our home's going to be broken. We're going to lose all our, everything we, we built over these years as a, as a family. Our children are going to be hurt. You, you can't have a house turn on itself and the house survive. So therefore, verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, guess what? He can't stand. He is coming to an end. And you would think, that if they really believe what they're saying, that rather than trying to stop what Jesus is doing, if he's really doing this by the power of Satan, you think they'd encourage it because that, that means that, that Satan's kingdom is almost done in this world. Look, Satan's got a civil war going on. They're all fighting against each other. Yes, go, Jesus. Go cast out more demons and let's cause more conflict in the evil world and, and everything, will, everything will be better. Any logical person with any common sense who truly believed that this was the case would be happy to let it continue. And so by making this common sense argument, I think Jesus is showing us that the Pharisees don't really believe their own message. They know they're lying as they say it. 
and he uses common sense to point that out. Number two, he gives a spiritual truth response, I'm calling it. And, and this is in verse 27. He says, again, in parable form, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. This, this is a spiritual truth that's being stated in a, in a parable form. He says, look, I think a strong man, I think a seal, so I'll use the seal. So no one can uh, break into a seal's house and you know, plunder his house if the seal's not tied up, right? You want to give that a try? You go for it, all right? I'm going to warn you in advance, it ain't going to work out too well for you if you try doing that. However, however, if somehow the, the seal's been bound, you've got him tied up, you've got him incapacitated in some way, then guess what? You can, you can do it. Better not let him see you, but you can do it because he's tied up. He can't do it. If you're strong enough to do that, to tie him up, then go for it. Well, what's Jesus's point? Well, I think that clearly the strong man here is Satan. He's a strong man in this world. He's an angelic being, as we looked at a few months ago. He's a strong man, and this world is his home. And here is Jesus in Satan's house, so to speak, plundering it thoroughly. I mean, already, three chapters into Mark, he is plundering it thoroughly. He, he's casting out demons. He's healing diseases. He's forgiving sins. He's bringing light into darkness. He's speaking truth into a world of lies. He is plundering Satan's house, which tells me a spiritual truth about Jesus, that Jesus is stronger than Satan, that he's better than Satan, that he's different from and more powerful than Satan could ever be. He's not, uh, he's not plundering the strong man's house with the strong man's permission. Okay? He's not Satan casting out Satan. He has bound the strong man. He has defeated the strong man. And he is now plundering his house indeed. Pretty cool. Because he's going to keep that work up. So, so in doing this, in saying this, he's drawing a distinction between him and Satan for those who are listening to him. Number three, he gives a warning then. He says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, if you spent any time in a church setting whatsoever, then you know that this passage that we're reading here is better known as being about what? The. Thank you. The unpardonable sin. And just think about that phrase for a moment, the unpardonable sin, a sin which cannot be pardoned. It cannot be forgiven. It, it, you, there's, no, there's no hope if, if, if you've committed this. And this is taken directly from Jesus' statement here. He says that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, note, never has forgiveness. Like, ever. Taylor Swift, right? Like, ever. Never. Never has forgiveness. Sorry. Why? Because he is guilty of an eternal sin. These are Jesus' words here, and there's no ambiguity in that statement. There's, There's no lack of clarity. Jesus is describing something that is so bad, so heinous, so egregious, that if one does this, he says, he cannot be forgiven. And that's a that's a pretty scary thought isn't it? I mean, who, who wouldn't be terrified by that? I, I've feared it before. I've wondered in the past, like particularly when I was a kid who would hear this kind of message preached or about this section or would read it on my own, I'd be like, 
Have I done that? Did I? And I was st- stupid one time, and I made this comment. Did I? I've had those kinds of fears. Many of you have probably feared the same thing as well. And while I understand that fear, let me let me assure you that the majority of those fears are completely unfounded, just simply based on a right understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. The question before us is this, what exactly is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus is is talking about here? Well, to, to understand that, you have to remember the context in which and to whom this statement is being made. First, remember that Jesus is saying this to the religious leaders, right? You remember that? He's talking to the scribes. These are the the biblically trained, religiously astute scholars of his day. These are the guys who spend all their waking hours studying God's word to understand God and his will and his his ways. These are the the guys who spent countless hours praying for God to to send the Messiah, send this promised Savior to come and deliver them, particularly from Rome. These are the guys who have sat at Jesus' feet, as we've seen over those five scenes. They've listened to and understood his teaching. I mean, they got the fact that a lot of times he's talking about them, that he doesn't really care for them too much in their system. They've witnessed the grace and the kindness that he has offered freely to those around him, be it lepers or tax collectors or common people. He makes no distinctions, and they make tons. They, they've heard his message of forgiveness of sins based on faith alone. What did the guy who was dropped through the ceiling do to earn forgiveness? Nothing. He simply believed. And Jesus, seeing his faith, Mark writes there, said, son, your sins are forgiven based on faith alone, not the works of the law. They've been front row on multiple occasions as he has displayed his power against demon and diseases and sin. And that they understood the significance of these things is clear, I think, from the fact that in their public campaign against Jesus, they make no attempt, no attempt to deny those things. They've decided not even to fight those battles. My point here is that these guys aren't ignorant. (laughs) These are the smartest guys in the room. In fact, I think it would be safe to say that they are as close as you could come to salvation without being saved. They've seen it, they get it, they understand it, they can't deny it, and yet they still reject it. This is who Jesus is talking about. They, they're, they're rejecting it to destroy it. This is who he's talking to. Second, remember the setting in which this is taking place. So here we have these religious leaders. They're unable to deny, right, what they've seen and heard and witnessed with their own eyes, just based on its own merits. They can't deny any of the stuff. So they've embarked, though, on a campaign to discredit Jesus in this very specific way. Listen to this. They have made a purposeful, knowledgeable, intentional choice to redefine the working of the Spirit of God in Jesus as really being the working of the spirit of Satan in Jesus for the purpose, this is long, for the purpose of rejecting him themselves and leading others to reject him as well. Did you catch that? Let me read it one more time. In, in, in doing what they've done, they have made a purposeful, knowledgeable, intentional choice to redefine the working of the spirit of God in Jesus as really being the working of the spirit of Satan in Jesus for the purpose 
of rejecting him themselves and leading others to reject him as well. This is exactly what Mark clarifies for us here in verse 30. After Jesus has talked about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that can never be forgiven, he, he says that the specific act of blasphemy that Jesus has in view here is summed up in this accusation that Jesus has an unclean spirit. That this is the blasphemy that, that Jesus has in mind here. It's this specific accusation that he's not empowered by the Holy Spirit, but rather by Satan himself. Again, note, for the purpose of rejecting him themselves, this is their own message to themselves, and leading others to reject him as well. And so, and so based on that, I define the unpardonable sin in the way I just read to you as the intentional, purposeful, knowledgeable choice to redefine the working of the Spirit in and through Jesus as really being the working of Satan in and through Jesus for the purpose of rejecting him and leading others to reject him as well. And I think that definition fits the context perfectly. And and if I had time, and I don't have time, but if I had time, I could even uh, correlate it to other passages, particularly those, I think, in the book of Hebrews. But, But before moving on, can I just make a few applications from this? Just real quick. Number one, that means that nobody accidentally commits this sin. It's not just like as, as where you're like, oh, I said the stupid thing because I wasn't thinking. I probably have committed it. No, 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 no. This kind of thing requires real knowledge of who Jesus is. It reminds me again of the words from Hebrews 6 about someone who has been enlightened. They've tasted, they've, they've witnessed, they've seen, but something's not right, and they in turn reject it all. This, this is not a, an accidental step. This is something done with great knowledge and intentionality. Number two, I don't see this as just being a one, one-time kind of sin either. It's not like, well, I was really angry at God because this happened and I said this. and now. No, I don't think it's that kind of thing. It, it seems much more premeditated than that, particularly in the context of what Jesus is saying here. Number three, I would see this as being a pretty unusual sin to occur. Just for the record, now, I don't know that for a fact. This is me just trying to think it through and, and study it out. But I, I don't think that I've ever run into anyone who had rejected Jesus in this way where they're like, yeah, I know who Jesus is, but I think it was really Satan in him. I'm not saying that I haven't been around people who did that. I just haven't known it. So I don't, I don't think this is a very common kind of sin. And number four, I would agree with the vast majority of pastors and theologians through the ages who would say to us pastorally that if you are worried about whether or not you've ever committed this sin, that's pretty much guaranteed proof that you haven't. Because if you have gotten to a place in your own heart and mind where you are so against Christ that you want to reject him in this way and lead others to reject him as well, you're probably not really concerned about anything he said, particularly this. Does that make sense? So, so I get why we feared it. I get why there's been confusion on this issue, but but again, I would define this blasphemy against the Spirit that Jesus is describing here as the purposeful, knowledgeable, intentional choice to redefine the working of the Spirit of God in Jesus as really being the working of the Spirit of Satan in Jesus so that you can reject him and lead others to reject him as well. But, but can I point out to you in closing that even though it's these words here in verses 29 to 30 that often grab our attention, that we focus on and think about, that they're really not the words we should be focused on. 
Because if we just back up one verse to 28 and look at how Jesus started this, we would find that this passage isn't a scary passage. It's a great passage. Because here, Jesus gives us an assurance that we should run to any time Satan or our hearts brings our past sins to mind. Because he says here that all sins will be forgiven, the children of men. Whatever blasphemies there are. I mean, just, just stop and think about that. All sins. You say, ah, no, it can't be. There's all this stuff I... I, I did this thing. I met people who've got like this, this event in their past and they're so focused on it that whether they're a believer or not, they can never seem to get away from it. It's like an anchor that's always dragging on their soul. And I say to you, don't you understand? All sins can be forgiven. You don't know what I said. All blasphemies can be forgiven. Or maybe it's not just one thing. Maybe it's a pattern. Maybe it's a lifestyle. Maybe it's, it's a series of choices made over years. Again, I would say to you what Jesus says here in verse 28, all sins can be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. Stop letting the accuser accuse you. Stop, stop letting your heart lie to you and run to the one who speaks truth to you here that all sins can be forgiven only through the blood of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning, you're a believer and the accuser just keeps bringing your past or your present back to your mind, then I'd give you three things you should do. Number one, you should agree with him every time because he's always right. He is. You did this. Yep, I sure did. Can't deny it. I was a failure. I was a sinner. I was an idiot. I did all those things. Everything that my heart accuses me of is correct and true. But number two, then you remind yourself of the gospel. But this is why Jesus came. He came so that I didn't have to try to make all those things right. So that God could take all of that junk and put it on Christ and then pour out all his wrath and anger on him so that I could be forgiven. Don't run from your past, embrace your past, and then put it back on Jesus, because that's why he came in the first place. Agree with the accusation, remind yourself of the gospel. Number three, remember that Jesus has bound the strong man and has plundered and will continue to plunder his house thoroughly. Satan has no power over believers. He can accuse, he can cause problems, he he can create a great deal of turmoil. But he has been bound by someone far stronger than him. And his house is done. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, then I'm telling you that Jesus comes. Look at that verse. Just think of that verse. He's come offering you hope and forgiveness. All your sins can be forgiven. All your blasphemies that you've uttered, they can all be forgiven. You just simply must come as the helpless, hopeless sinner that you are, that we were apart from Christ. And put your hope, your faith in the one who bound the strong man, plundered his house, and is now here to set the captive free. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we come this morning thankful for this offer of forgiveness. It is so clearly on display here. Forgive us for focusing on these wrong verses that, that, that have very little to do with the vast majority of people around us. We, we fear and in fearing we prove that we don't understand verse 28, that all the sins can be forgiven. All the blasphemies uttered can be forgiven. Jesus, thank you for that forgiveness. 
Lord, when the accuser brings our sins to mind, help us not to try to run from them or, or to be burdened down by them. They, they are our failures. They are our sins. We have committed them. We cannot deny it. But we remember with great joy that you came to set us free and to plunder the strong man's house. And our forgiveness is bound up not in our works, but in your grace. Our hope is not in in how good we can be and how much we can make right those wrongs, but in how much you did for us on the cross. And Lord, may our confidence be there and there alone. And if there are any in here this morning, Lord, who don't have that confidence, who don't know what it means to truly be forgiven, who are burdened down by this anchor of sin, that Satan in their own heart just keeps bringing back to their minds and think you can't possibly love them. Lord, this morning, will you open those eyes to see this glorious truth that we call the gospel, that you have come to set the captives free. Freedom is theirs to take if only they will turn to you in faith. So God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your spirit. May you continue to make us more like Jesus in your name. Amen.